Thank you for tuning in to Season 3 of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to one of the most formative voices in Star Wars, Mr. Bill Slavisek, writer, game designer, and creative director for West End Games and Wizards of the Coast. From naming alien creatures like Ithorians, Quarans, and Celestins to shaping what we now consider to be the voice of Star Wars, this is Talking Bay 94, Episode 44, Bill Slavisek. Today I'm joined by... Honestly, one of the people that defined Star Wars, both uh, in the original Expanded Universe days, continuing to even now, uh, Mr. Bill Slavisek, uh, editor, writer, creative director for West End Games and everything they produced. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, no. Thank you for having me. Uh, we'll talk about it when we get into it even more, but your book, uh, Defining a Galaxy, is uh, very recent and uh, it's obviously going to kind of take on what we talk about today, but... Uh, I really wanted to bring it up at the forefront because really the amount of work that you did in the 90s and 2000s that have defined what Star Wars is to us today, whether it's naming alien characters or just establishing ground rules that we now just take for granted, really is awe-inspiring. What was your first interaction with the saga and what was your first thought when the movie came out in 77? Well, my first interaction was... Uh, well, I guess I read the novelization and the first, the first issue of the comic book. Uh, and I'd been reading, uh, the Starlog magazine and was doing, uh, previews of the upcoming stuff, but I wasn't ready for what the movie actually <laughs> turned out to be. Uh, I, don't, I don't think anybody was, uh, I saw it opening day. Uh, I remember we, uh, we cut class that day to go to the Los Astra Plaza in Manhattan. We were the first people online. We used to do that because you couldn't buy your tickets in advance back then. And, uh, you know, there was no line at the bed. You know, a couple of us wait, waiting to see the first showing on a Wednesday afternoon, I guess, it probably or Wednesday morning probably was. Uh, got in there, and we stayed three times that day because they didn't throw us out. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it just, you know, that was the summer for me of Star Wars, uh, Dungeons and Dragons and the Sword of Shannara, and that kind of oh yeah, that kind of all set the tone. Even though I didn't know it yet, for where my career would go later. All right, that's an origin story if I've ever heard one. That's great. Um, what was your interaction with D and D? Because that obviously defined a lot of your professional work. What was that first interaction with RPGs and, and role playing games? Uh, so my gaming group uh, when I was in uh, high school and early college, we. Uh, we played a lot of board games in the early days, uh, and then we used to we were building our own war game, and we mm -hmm. were using the, the uh, Airfax miniatures, the little uh, World War II soldiers from uh, from Britain, mm -hmm. uh, and we'd glue them to cardboard, and we'd make little stands of soldiers and things like that. And we were at Polk's Hobby, uh, an old store in in Manhattan again, and uh, a hobby store, looking for more uh, pieces for our war game. When I found uh, the hardcover player's handbook, I believe is the first product I found, although it could have been one of the box sets. Mm -hmm. My memory is hazy, but we found D and D I became the dungeon master because I was the guy that read all the rules for the board games <laughs> anyway. Uh -huh. And, uh, and the rest is history. <laughs> I love it. Well, you went then from, you know, playing it, uh, to then a more professional sense. And in your book, you describe that you gave up a very, and I'm sure we would have been talking about a completely different thing. 40 years later, a uh, 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 lucrative role with Vending Machine Times to eventually work as an editor for West End Games. What was that like jumping from being just a fan of RPGs to then working in a professional setting? Yeah, so um, I had studied journalism and I was uh, had worked on a newspaper for about a year after college and uh, figured that's where I was going. Uh, but after that first year on the community newspaper, you started to repeat stories uh, so I was starting to get bored. So I went looking for uh, what's the next job for a journalism major with an editing background? Who wants to be a writer? Uh, <laughs> hmm. And, you know, I was answering everything I could in uh, in the New York Times. Uh, and then I found this one ad for uh, a game editor. It didn't say anything else. Uh, it just said, send sample and resume to P.O. Box, whatever. <laughs> so I uh, I sent it in. Uh, meanwhile, I've been going on other interviews, you know, if you name the trade magazine, I probably interviewed with them, uh, <laughs> uh, I had 
just settled on the vending machine times as the one that had at least something I was interested in. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we I get to write about video game or arcade games once in a blue moon. Uh, when suddenly I got the call from uh, West End, who I'd actually never heard of at that point. Even though I was a D&D player, uh, I had not yet seen any of their, uh, of their games. Uh, but I went on the interview, got the call right before I started the other job. So I had to bow out of it, which you know uh-huh. was an agonizing decision because I had kind of given my word. But this seemed like the, the better fit for me in the long run. And it turned out to be true. What were your first projects at West End? And maybe explain to the listener what an editor for an RPG company was doing on a daily basis. Well, back in those days, uh, West End Games was primarily known as a board game company. They, they were, Their big hits at the time were uh, a game called Junta, uh, some war games, uh, some civil war games. Uh, and they had recently published uh, their first RPG called Paranoia. So I was hired, uh, like I said, as an editor, which meant three-stage process for uh, the West End process for designing games. Uh, a designer uh, writes the game, builds the prototype if it's a board game, or, or writes the rules if it's an RPG, play tests it with developers, gets the manuscript ready for publication to the best of their ability, and then it goes to an editor to clean it up, give the rules a good polish, and, and really get it ready to be printed. So that was my, my first uh, experience. Uh, like One of the first things I did, they were just doing the game called Ghostbusters, the role-playing game, was just coming off the out of the printer when I got there. Uh, so I got to edit the galleys for that, uh, mostly proofreading because it had been edited already. So I was proofreading lots of galleys. And the Ghostbusters game is the first D6 system game, which was the predecessor to Star Wars back in the day. Uh, but also a lot of uh, board games. I worked on, as an editor, Kings and Things, uh, the Cosmic Encounter reprint that we, uh, West End did, a uh, game called RAF, as that first year went along, I started to get into development as well, which is kind of part and parcel with the editor job, is making sure everything is tweaked just right. Right. And then I also got to begin uh, doing my own writing for them. Uh, I worked on a Ghostbusters adventure called Scared Stiffs with uh, John M. Ford. Uh, I did some paranoia short adventures for Hill Sector Blues. I did one about uh, your pet bot was missing, something like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is about a dinosaur cloning project gone wrong well before Jurassic Park. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I was beginning the game. The company was beginning to transition from a board game company that dabbled in role playing games to a role playing game company that dabbled in board games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I was beginning to find my uh, my footing in the company. Uh, and by the end of that first year, we heard we had gotten the Star Wars license, and I started uh, working on the Star Wars source book. And the rest is, as they say, history. I love it. Well, uh, in your book, you do detail a little bit about how that license was acquired um, for Star Wars, and obviously going against uh, the other big. RPG publishers during that time. I do love, you had a quote in there about one of the first advertisements for Star Wars uh, where you didn't think, I, I have it in quotes, that there wasn't, uh, there was no whoosh, no wahoo in the copy for what was then being put out as a Star Wars advertisement, which I thought was was great. What was that like channeling the voice of Star Wars, which at that point was pretty much just three movies and a handful of books and comics, to then being something that these source books are, are world building um, defined, really. What was that like having to, to carry that voice through? Yeah, the way you just mentioned that, uh, that is probably the first time I served that function and I hadn't realized it until you, <laughs> you put it that way. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't yet on the project. I was, uh, or maybe I was just editing the core book at that point mm-hmm. uh, with Paul Murphy uh, because they originally they, they had a whole different team working on Star Wars and I was part of the team working on everything else, but as uh, as deadlines loomed, we all got pulled over into the Star Wars uh, uh, gravity well, as as you would say. Um, so uh, I was at my desk doing something else. Uh, Eric Goldberg, uh, the studio head at the time, uh, came over and asked me to take a look at the ad that uh, Greg Kostikian had just written and give my two cents. And as you said, 
Uh, I thought it read more like a Star Trek ad, perfectly good, but it felt more like Star Trek, which we had also uh, produced a board game on right before then, uh, and less like a Star Wars. It didn't have that feel of the movies, the mm-hmm. the speed, the action, the uh, uh, the adventure. Uh, right, the and, whoosh, and the wahoo, <laughs> the whoosh and the wahoo. Right, and uh-huh. and that's that's the feedback I gave, and, yeah. and Eric said, "Thank you very much," and he walked away, and I forgot all about it until. Uh, a couple hours later, Greg kind of stormed over, dropped the, a new sheet of paper on my desk and walked away. And I looked at it and said, oh, that's much better. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, and that's kind of what uh, uh, Paul and I helped put into the into that core book when we yeah. did our editing was to make uh, the feel of Star Wars uh, come come through the a, a, and connect with the great game design. Let's talk about the game itself now, um, especially those first books that came out. Um, what was that process like? First, you were a little more hands-off, like you were mentioning, right? The editing process. But then as the source books progressed, you were more and more involved. What were those first initial products offered, and how were you involved with them? Yeah, our first uh, our first set of products were the two hardcovers, the Star Wars role-playing game and the Star Wars source book. Uh, slated to come out in October and November of 1987 uh, for the 10-year anniversary of uh, of the film. Uh, we were really the only major project coming out of Lucasfilm licensing. My con- I used to work for Marvel Comics back in the day, too. I was a freelance writer for Marvel Age, and my editor over there said, the Star Wars license, that's dead. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we were we were bucking the trend by, right. by pursuing a... So a lot of firsts in those books, right? They're, they're um, the first hardcover books uh, for a role-playing game other than, uh, I think, TSR had done them for D&D. And uh, that might have been it at that time. We also added color. We were the first game to add color. Uh, everything else up to that point was black and white. Uh, we added color signatures to the role-playing game uh, in the form of these great ads uh, set in the universe. Yes. Um, and then we also added a, a spot color to the source book. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, later on, uh, Jim Ward from uh, uh, TSR complained that when he did second edition D&D, he had to go full color because we, uh, <laughs> we, we did partial color. Right. But uh, like I said, at the beginning, I was not part of the Star Wars team, but everybody was being used to play test. Uh, we, were, we would run uh, adventures, uh, battles, testing different rules uh, almost daily uh, or, or multiple times a day as, 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 as stuff came, came out of uh, Greg's computer. We would, Greg Stickin's computer, we would, uh, we would test it. Uh, as the process was going on, uh, Paul Murphy, who was the lead editor, uh, needed some help. Uh, so I became his uh, co-editor for the book. We both kind of reviewed the whole manuscript, but my areas of concentration were the adventure in the back, which I developed the, the, the format for adventures that we would use later uh, in our standalone adventures, and I did some of the introductory material at the beginning of the book, uh, you know, again, setting the tone of the world. I, I, I just, I, I seemed to have an ear for that. Uh, and everybody else was recognizing that. Uh, so they let me handle that kind of stuff. Uh, as that was going on, Curtis Smith, who was also our, uh, the new creative head of the studio at that time, because Greg had stepped aside just to work on, on the rule set. He was supposed to be the sole designer for the source book. And the source book was going to be basically our campaign setting for Star Wars. Uh, you'd get the two books, the two pairs of books, uh, and you'd have enough to play uh, a Star Wars campaign for, you know, for a good long while. And it's kind of amazing because those books are only 144 pages each. Uh, when you look at the books coming out today that, it, that can reach three to 400 pages, I'm still impressed about how much we, we packed into those uh, those books that was worthwhile and useful. Um, but the, uh, uh, as we were wrapping up the editing work of the rule book, Curtis was way behind on the source book and asked me to uh, come aboard and be his uh, co-designer. But as he was being pulled off more and more for managerial duties, uh, he only wound up writing about 10 pages of the book. 
so so I wrote the rest of it and and fleshed it out and uh, put the whole thing together. Uh, and that's really the the first place where I I, I did that uh, that massive overwrite and uh, giving a project a single voice that that I would do multiple times later in my career. I I have the the source book in front of me right now. I, I I've tried to track down as many of the copies, especially of the hardcover source books as, as possible, just, mm-hmm. just because they're just important pieces of star Wars history that are more and more hard to find now. And the, the star Wars source book specifically, right. And you are credited as co-author. And if you had just done this, right. If this was, if I was calling you today and just talking about the star Wars source book, you would have already been, I mean, I, I'm, bl- I'm looking through these pages. And I'm just blown away. And, and let's talk about them a little bit because one of the things that the star Wars source book did was really lay the groundwork for what the expanded universe would then pick up and use as just common knowledge thrown around in the Thrawn trilogy and every piece of Bantam book that came out. Um, I would love to first talk about alien names because that honestly is one of your longest lasting legacies is, is defining these characters that were just random masks in a creature shop that then became fully formed identities that we just take for granted. For instance, the Athorians, right? That's my first action figure ever was... Momau Nodden from Power of the Force 2, right? And said Athorian on there. What was that like taking these Rick Baker creations and these island prop shops and turning them into fully formed characters? Well, it goes back to the way we approached the book itself, right? Uh, like I said, this was a campaign setting for Star Wars. Right. Um, uh, the first thing we had to do was convince Lucasfilm to let us do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, initially they thought we would just take everything that had already been shown and somehow just use that without adding anything. Right. Uh, and, and so we had to first show them that, no, we needed to, to do more than that. Uh, and, you know, it was a little uh, touchy at first, but eventually they acquiesced and they got very excited by it. You know, uh, a couple of years later, when the expanded universe did kick off, uh, they, would, they would always send out a box of our products <laughs> to their new authors and right. say, make sure it matches this stuff. So, uh, so it, it didn't take us long to work into a, a partnership with Lucasfilm where they actually appreciated and valued what we were doing. One of the things you do in a campaign setting is you have to build the foundation of the world and the boundaries of the world so game masters and players uh, know the limits and what they can do with that world. Um, and to do that, uh, that includes things like the people in the world, the villains, the, the, the allies, the NPCs, all of that, uh, all that stuff goes into it. And Star Wars was all about aliens. You know, we see that in the cantina. Uh, we see that in the bounty hunters. Uh, the rebellion is made up of uh, some level of aliens uh, in addition to humans. Um, so that became, and that was also the art that we had to use. So we worked with what we had. Uh, but when I was writing those, you know, I'm like, I can't call these guys hammerheads. That's right. that's an insult at best, or a nickname, or a nickname at best, and an insult at worst. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, and I do use hammerhead as you know what they're called as a you know as a as a colloquialism right. uh, or an insult or what have you. Uh, but I felt you know every one of these races was important and should have a culture and a background and a name worthy of of them. Um, so uh, I just kind of, what am I going to say about these people? And then what name seems to fit that? And I just kind of make it up as I go along. <laughs> I love it. I want to. I, I want to say. I want to say some of these names so that people listening understand that we're not just talking about random aliens. These are like again. I said Athorian, right? You mentioned Moncals, Quarins, Twi'leks, right? And then you also established the Headtails and kind of. I don't think you defined Leku, but I think you really did kind of hone in on what the Headtails for the Twi'leks were, which is just crazy. I'm literally, it's chapter eight aliens, if anyone has their book. And if you just read through this, the amount of lore that you establish within 25 pages is absurd. <laughs> really, it's crazy. Are there any that stick out to you as, as kind of when you were making them? I, I really did like the authorians. I like the whole idea of the herd mentality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I really got that from the action figure's foot. It looked mm-hmm. like an elephant to me. Uh-huh. And, and I had just read, um, um, footfall by Larry Nevin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's about the aliens that are elephant like, 
and, and it just kind of all clicked together for them. Now, not all the names I made. Jawas was actually from the script, uh, but I gave them the idea of the the, the rodent-like warrens inside of their sand crawlers that uh-huh. they live within. Celestin, I think... I think Celeste was mentioned in the novel, but not Celestin in the uh, Empire Strikes Back novel. And, you know, I loved creating their world, which was, you know, they lived uh, inside the world because the outside, the the surface was so uh, hostile to them. I love all the stuff I put together. And later on, like you said, seeing the the first place I actually saw them really come to life was on the, when Hasbro started naming the action figures with those names. Um, And then of course, the expanded universe used all those names. Uh, Rodians. Uh, right. That's another one that I uh, we enjoyed putting those together. <laughs> with the, we made them a culture of hunters. Mm. Um, Wookies. We pulled up the life debt that I think is mentioned in the Brian Daly books and turned that into a whole part of the Wookiee mindset. Uh, I was so disappointed that that wasn't part of the solo movie. Yeah, I mean, I really, you, you mentioned it, and, and some of it has been retconned, right? For instance, how Han and Chewie first meet. But even, like, Admiral Akbar's, you know, how he joined the Rebellion. And again, like, how Han rescued Chewie from slavery, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, things that we took for granted, right, that were eventually fleshed out in books or in comics or whatever it was, a lot of it had its groundwork in just little call-out boxes that were in the original Star Wars source book. I, 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 like, yep. I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to read through, and the stuff that you were putting in are just mined still for, for ideas and content. And, and, you know, I was just trying to make a good book. Um, <laughs> I had no idea what we were setting up at the time, right. uh, other than this would be what I would want as a Star Wars fan. Yeah, uh, That's kind of the way I always approach my work, is you know, what gets me excited. Um, and that's what I try to put into the pages. Um, and then, you know, later on, uh, I think the culmination of all of this was, um, the Star Wars animated shows, uh, Clone Wars and Rebels, where names that I might've heard on an audiobook mm. were suddenly being said by actors <laughs> performing characters, right. uh, you know, Twi'lek and, uh, uh, Ryloth which was the Twilight planet that I uh-huh. created or integral to the rebels plotline. So, uh, you know, that's, that's humbling and, and immensely uh, gratifying at the same time. No, I, I love it so much. When you were putting these together, whether it is the star Wars source book or then the, the books and galaxy guides and adventures that came um, later, one of the, the highlights of all the West end games books specifically were especially in that time the pictures and the elements that were being shown visually were things like we were talking about before we came on. You know, there was no internet, there was no Wikipedia, and this was really the first place you could see something from the archives or Joe Johnson's sketch, or here's Ralph McQuarrie's painting of Bespin. What was that process like going to Skywalker Ranch and figuring out which pieces you wanted to use for the books? Some of my favorite memories of uh, working on Star Wars are the visits to the ranch. Uh, the ranch was an amazing place, or is an amazing place. Um, uh, so peaceful. Uh, there weren't a ton of people working there. It was very quiet. But it also felt like you were going to a special place. And the first time they took us into the uh, archive at the time, which was in a warehouse off of the property, it was like going into the uh, Indiana Jones uh, <laughs> scene at the end of the first movie, or the Rages of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louise Riley, who was our contact at the beginning, took Curtis and I there, locked us in, which was probably against fire code <laughs> violations, and said she'd be back in a couple of hours. You know, we were ostensibly going to look through the, the racks of uh, set blueprints to see what we could u- pull to utilize to create maps for the game mm-hmm. or for the books. Uh, so we had one spotlight over a table next to this shelving unit full of drawers of blueprints. Um, and we spent about an hour going through there. Uh, we found like plans for the Millennium Falcon, which we utilized, uh, set plans for the cantina that we turned into a map, set plans for uh, what parts of Marseille they built that we could then build around as, as part of our map that we did for Tattery Manhunt. But after a while, Curtis said, hey, do you know where we are? I said, yeah, we're in a warehouse looking at things. And then, no, look over there. And over there was hanging 
rows of Wookiee costumes. Oh my god, yeah. And stormtrooper armor and Star Destroyer as big as my coffee table in my living room. Uh, now, this stuff wasn't in great shape because movie props are not built to last more than what they need to film them. But George kept them. Uh, <laughs> so there, you know, there was a walker. There was a box of lightsabers that I just you know, I had to touch one. Right. And I almost threw it across the room because it was made of balsa wood. It was really uh, light. Yeah. Uh, and I expected like a big flashlight handle mm -hmm. and they had those too but the one i happened to grab was uh, a very light prop and i mm -hmm. quickly put it back because i did not want to be the one to break a piece of star wars history um and when she came when louise came back later uh she gave us the tour and we got to look around a little more uh but between that and uh, they did have an archive that just had all of the movie stills and photos from the sets and all of the uh um, concept art that had been produced. And we got, uh, we got to look at contact sheets. That's how you did that in these days. And we would select which ones we wanted them to get us a print of that we would then take back and use for either reference or to, to put into one of the books. Uh, we worked with our art director, Steve Crane, and we just went through everything and tried to figure out how can we use this? So this is pretty cool. Let's turn this into interdictor cruiser, the one that makes the gravity wells that, that stop ships because it's got these big things on it that look like that's what they could do. You know, so we just took everything that we got and figured out what is this? If it had, if it didn't get into the movie, what can we turn it into? And uh, it was just total creativity uh, trying to make the best stuff we could to put in those books. You know, because why buy new art when we had all that art to work with? Right. Why buy new art when you can just use Joe Johnson and Ralph McQuarrie? Not a not a bad trade-off. And we used a lot of it for covers. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the Ralph McQuarrie paintings became covers. Um, now, we did create new art for some products, mm -hmm. uh, but that was a little later uh, as we started to need to go beyond what was available from the three movies. Moving to then the, the further products, like you mentioned, what was different between creating a source book, let's say for one of the books like Teresa Pakura, but then creating galaxy guides or adventures? What was kind of the differences and the similarities that putting those together every year? So as we finished the source book, West End Games changed. A lot of people that were there with me from the beginning had decided to move on. Uh, the company was moving to Pennsylvania uh, to new offices that we had built there from Manhattan. And it was just a new, uh, it was like a changing of the guard. And I suddenly found myself in charge. <laughs> uh, so that was the first big switch. I was, I was promoted to now creative director for what we were going to be doing, primarily with Star Wars, because that was where we were going to be putting most of our effort. Uh, but we were still doing Ghostbusters and Paranoia as well. So... And later we did a game called Torg. So I started to put all that kind of stuff together. I inherited, <clears throat> I inherited a initial plan for Star Wars that included the two hardcover books, a board game called Star Warriors, uh, the first adventure, Tatooine Manhunt. There were a couple of uh, pick-a-path books that Troy Denning was writing. And I think we had a couple of other adventures in the hopper. Uh, including Strikeforce Shantipole and um, there was another one. I can't remember right off the top of my head. But mm. that was that was it. So I had to figure out where do we go from here. And uh, my first thought was the Galaxy Guides. Uh, we did two versions of them. We did uh, one set that defined everything in the three movies. So we did one for each of the movies. And then we did another set uh, that explored other elements of the galaxy. We did the alien races one. Uh, we did uh, a planet one uh, that covered Bespin and Yavin. And we did one on uh, tramp freighters, which kind of expanded the setting if you wanted to be a smuggler type of a character. So, so we were trying some different things with the galaxy guides. And I think that was important to do. Uh, and then we also did additional hardcovers, uh, basically the Imperial source book and the Rebel Alliance source book, just to, to round out to round out the world and, and the, the factions of the world at that time, plus adventures. So basically, I put all of that plan together, and then we started uh, 
uh, implementing to hit those products to to logically expand our our offerings and uh, provide things that the players and the fans. Uh, one thing we knew back in those days that as many players as we had, we had two or three or four times as many people that just read the games because they didn't have anyone to play with. Right. Uh, so we wrote the books with the Star Wars fan in mind. Uh, you could ignore all the little stat blocks in the Star Wars source book, and you have a great product if you just want to know about Star Wars stuff. Right. And that's we applied that to almost everything we did. Um, and I think that worked out really well. Yeah, it shows. It, I mean, even now, like when I'm getting these books again and reading them again, it's now just an enjoyment thing, right? I'm not playing these games or, or trying to replicate it. It's it's now what is the information? What is the stories being told? What are the little pop-ups? And the, you mentioned it earlier, the incredible little in-world ads, you know, like just how entertaining each of these books are on their own. And then if you consider it as part of a, a, an actual story as well, it's just incredible. Yeah, the, the ads and the little stories that I did for the source book uh, are two of my favorite. Uh, we basically did them as fillers, but yeah. they became very uh, iconic and important fillers. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I did not have the respect I have for books, and especially these books, I would, just, I would love to just print those out and, and frame them, right? Or rip them out and put them on my wall. Because some of them, like the astromech droid one, still sticks in my mind. It's just, just so great. And then with, with West End, and you mentioned it earlier, and you even just brought up Troy Denning, a lot mm-hmm. of this was, again, laying the groundwork for the expanded universe in, in two ways, right? One, you mentioned, you know, sending Tim Zahn a box of these books and saying, hey, if you could, please stay within the world that's being created here. And then the second element was really finding these these talent pools of people that knew how to write Star Wars, whether it was for little short stories or for Galaxy Guides or whatever it was. And the legacy that these West End games books have had has lasted throughout. Right now, even you see with, let's say, Troy Denning writing then expanded universe novels in the future or with Pablo Hidalgo and Leland Chi, right? Like, the RPGs then have really shaped what Star Wars is today. What was it like initially in the first steps of the expanded universe, especially with those early Bantam books? What influence did you have on them directly? And then what did you see carried through from your original source books to, let's say, the Thrawn trilogy? <clears throat> so our our first connection with the expanded universe, I guess, was when we were introduced. Uh, we had a meeting with Cam Kennedy and... Um, and uh, Veach, who were writing yeah. uh, Dark Empire. Uh, I believe we met them before the deal with Dark Horse had been done. They were creating the comic, and they didn't yet have a publisher. <clears throat> so we, we talked about uh, things with them, gave them some, uh, some you know, we, we exchanged ideas, uh, and they took away some of the products, uh, and then they went off and, and did the comic. So... Uh, it was an interesting, but we th- we thought it was a one-off because right. you know th- th- this was new for us. Up to this point, we were the only game in town, so to speak, uh, and now there were be- now Lucasfilm licensing was beginning to uh, um, see that there was more value to this property than uh, than they had thought at the time. I guess uh, that there was life beyond the movies. Um, then. Uh, I was just getting ready to leave West End when the deal with Bantam and Timothy Zahn came to be. But I still had a relationship with uh, Lucasfilm um, at the time. Um, our new contact was Lucy Wilson. And and Lucy sent me a copy of Tim's uh, End of the Empire manuscript and just asked me what I thought. Um, and I gave a bunch of notes, and Tim graciously followed some of them and <laughs> didn't follow others. Uh, and that's you know that's perfectly fine. That's their prerogative. Um, uh, they did not yet have the story team as it's developed today. Um, so while there were people at Lucasfilm that approved everything, it, it wasn't with the same level of scrutiny and an eye to continuity that we see with the new regime, because I think they were just trying to figure it out back then themselves. Um, they also had a, a, a mindset in those days that what they were doing was canon, but it was only canon until George made a new movie. We were told 
you know, we can play with the toys, but one day he's going to back up the truck that is his new movie and he may run over some of the toys in the driveway. Right. And we were okay with that. That was, we knew the lay of the land. Uh, I think I say in the book that I'm just happy that so many of my toys made it into the truck. Uh, um, and also became the ground on which the truck rode, which, you know, is just mind boggling to me because that's not what we set out to do. We were right. just creating fun stuff for Star Wars, a, a property that we loved. Uh, and I think you mentioned it. Everybody that I know that worked on it was a fan. Uh, we lived and we breathed those movies, uh, especially when we were working on them, because, you know, we would watch the videotapes until they snapped, you know, over and over and over again to get every detail so we could put it correctly into word, into the books, into words. Um, I may have gone off topic. Did I answer the question? You answered the question, <laughs> and you also brought up my next question, which was you mentioned you're then leaving West End Games, but your involvement oh. with a Star Wars property does not end, obviously. And um, uh, it, it goes in two directions. One with some of the books that I considered then a Bible growing up, which was your guide to the Star Wars universe. Um, and I'm sure anyone listening has seen these covers, right? And there's, you know, tried to memorize as much as possible in these books. What was it like putting together pretty much just the the encyclopedia of, of Star Wars? There was the Star Wars encyclopedia, the Steve Sansweet book, but then there were these, which were A, portable, right? I could carry this around and, and point to it when I'm reading a book. But B, um, really defined a lot of, you know, not only what Star Wars was, but what the creatures and the characters and everyone, what, what they actually were about. So one of the things that we got from Lucasfilm in the early days to work from uh, was a little short book called A Guide to the Star Wars Galaxy mm -hmm. or sorry, Guide to the Star Wars Universe. But that was like a 120 page book of little dictionary entries right. on on whatever he decided um, to pull together at that point. And we used that. And uh, it was actually, you know, it was useful. When, uh, when I left West End, um, I did a couple of freelance projects for them. I wrote the, um, the Death Star Technical Companion uh, during that time, yeah. and the Heir to the Star Wars Universe, uh, Heir to the Empire Sourcebook, uh, and the, uh, the second one as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the Zahn trilogy um, and a couple of adventures. Uh, but I also got from Lucasfilm the contract to do a new version of the Guide to the Universe. And they wanted to pull out all the stops and basically wanted all of the, what was in my head put into a book. Mm -hmm. uh, so we did, you know, it's, it's a big, thick, uh, digest-size paperback. Um, I did the first one, uh, using as much of what was available from the game, the movies, the novels, and the new novels as I could pile in there. Uh -huh. But it was also my chance to be kind of a gatekeeper. Uh -huh. And whatever's in there from the expanded universe is stuff that I thought belonged. And if there was something I didn't think was quite up to snuff, <laughs> it didn't get in the book. Wasn't in there, uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> so, so if you go looking for something that you really loved and it's not in there, it's probably because I didn't think it was you didn't like quite that. Star Wars. Uh -huh. um, um, and I won't say what any of those are. That I leave that you know I don't want to rain on anybody's parade because right. uh, because I love those books in the expanded universe. But there's some stuff in there that I used to scratch my head. How did we let that get through? Um, <laughs> Uh, and I did the second one and I did the third one. And that was before uh, Steve Sansweet did his book, right. uh, his encyclopedia. Now, his encyclopedia, when it was described to me, he was doing that when I was working on the third edition mm -hmm. of, of the, uh, the guide. And it was described to me that that book was going to be much more an encyclopedia with longer entries. Right. That's not what it turned out it to be. It was not, no. I think his book is great, but it's basically a full color hardcover version of my book. Right. And, you know, uh, I wish he had gone in a slightly different direction, but, uh, you know, uh, it's still a beautiful book. Uh, and if you didn't want to spend the $12 for mine, you could get his for 
50 or whatever it was. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. That's why I had both of yours and not his as a 12-year-old kid. <laughs> that, was, that was why. Again, your, your involvement with Star Wars doesn't end after West End. You do the, the guide to the Star Wars universe, but then... Um, like you mentioned a little bit earlier, TSR and Wizards of the Coast then ends up with the Star Wars license and your involvement continues. What was it like then going from West End to Wizards and then recreating not only the RPG stuff, but then expanding on it and using prequels and then building a whole new world from that? So after I left West End, I spent two years as a freelancer uh, doing those books for Star Wars, as well as uh, things for TSR, which led to a job with, uh, with the D&D company. Um, and I was with them when Wizards of the Coast acquired them. Uh, they moved the staff out to Seattle. And then I found myself again in the position of, uh, well, we're going to put you in charge of this thing. Um, so I wound up as the uh, director of role-playing games, um, and set the course for uh, Dungeons and Dragons third and fourth editions. In 1999, 2000, uh, we started to negotiate with Lucasfilm. Uh, the West End license had ended, and they were shopping around Star Wars. And we decided we wanted it. Um, I had a relationship with them, so I was part of the team negotiating this new uh, possible uh, license. Um, and we pitched the idea of using, uh, the new D and D system, uh, the D20 system, uh, because so many people knew it, it would give them a, a built-in audience for the game. Um, the D20 system is slightly more robust than the D6 system. Um, it does different things, but it, it's, it, it lasts longer than I ran a star Wars game with the D6 system for five years, uh, for my friend, for my compatriots at TSR. Um, but after year two, we were off the game because, you know, the difficulty chart only goes up to 10 dice and my Jedi had 70 dice at that time, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we were just making it up as we went along. Yeah. Whereas the D20 system took you further. We spent a, a, a good t bit of time going back and forth to Lucasfilm to, uh, Skywalker Ranch to negotiate, to pitch ideas, to show them what we were going to do, uh, and to offer them more than just the role-playing game because, you know, Wizards was a full, uh, a full service company. We did card games, we did board games. Uh, uh, and just as we were closing the deal, we were purchased by Hasbro and became part of the Hasbro company, which also had a relationship with Lucasfilm. So suddenly it all made sense. But it was a very different world from the world when I created the West End material. When we did the West End material, we were the only people doing it. Um, so we had, we were setting that we were breaking ground. Uh, by the time Wizards got the license, uh, DK was doing the books we would have done. Uh, and they were doing them better. You know, they had better quality production, better, they, they could do full color. Uh, they could do all new art. Uh, you know, they, they, it was just a different, um, a different budgetary level than what I had at West End Games to work with. Um, so we had to think of a different way to approach Star Wars because instead of uh, creating the, the the background from scratch, we were interpreting. Uh, backgrounds into the role-playing game so it was a different a different mindset uh, and a different set of products uh, you know we tried to do some of the same stuff uh, and i think we did a good job with it but it's not as revolutionary as the stuff we did at west end which we didn't know was revolutionary when we were doing it but there was nothing else so we had to make it up right by the time by the time we got to the wizards years Somebody else had made it up. We were just translating it, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. There are two instances of of the Wizards era that I would like to bring up specifically, not only because it, it impacted who I was as a, as a kid growing up with role-playing and with Star Wars, but also because it was at least in some sense revolutionary because of the relationships you had with Hasbro and then 
kind of building on these stories. The first, um, very, very specifically, and maybe you can shine a little light on it, um, was the Invasion of Theed board game, which not only came with a exclusive action figure or whatever, but was a, a really important starter set, at least for me, about here's what role-playing is, here's how to play it, and then here's kind of a, a map that you can build that was a little more fully realized than just using my imagination. What was that process like? And I'm sure it was a lot easier than being acquired by Hasbro to kind of combine all these elements together. Uh, yeah, we worked with uh, <clears throat> with our compatriots at the at the uh, at the action figure studio uh, to create the uh, the Wookie figure that we put in that box. Um, and uh, you know, we were we were the first people to see those movies, uh, which was a very amazing process. Even <laughs> though I wish those movies were different than they turned out to be. Uh, it was still great to be in there seeing it as it was developing. Um, that was that, that was another one of those highlights that I'll look back upon. Uh, Howard Rothman, who is the uh, head of licensing at Lucasfilm, he would actually take us into a little theater and and basically tell us the story of the movie and act it out uh, using uh, still shots and animatronics. Uh, but basically just telling us the story. And uh, that was a pretty amazing way to to uh, to see the movies come to life. Yeah. Um, that particular product, I've done a lot of starter sets. That's one of the things that mm. I feel very strongly about. Uh, introductory sets, uh, teaching people how to play role-playing games. I even wrote uh, with Rich Baker, we wrote a series of uh, D&D for Dummies books right. uh, to help with that kind of thing. Uh you know, this is before, uh, I mean, today it's so much easier because everybody can just take a video of the game and show it to you. Right. But we didn't have that capability uh, back in the day. If you wanted to film something and, and put it before people, it was a ver much more elaborate process uh, and expensive. So instead, we made these these introductory kits. And uh, um, Theed was, we created a series of uh, pre-generated characters. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> who were kind of young uh, people in the Star Wars universe, including that Wookiee. Adam used to do the artwork for those guys, uh, comic book artist. I have a, uh, I have his painting of them on my wall. Wow. And, uh, <clears throat> and yeah, that was, you know, everything that was in there was deliberately done to help get a person that was interested in Star Wars to learn how to play the game. I love and, it. Uh, I'm glad it worked for you. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I'm a test case because of not only that, but then the second thing I want to discuss, which is a little bit further on in the Wizards of the Coast years, but is the miniature game that you helped spearhead as well, which for me especially was, you know, then you combine a little bit of an aspect of collectability, right, and the blind packaging, but also those miniatures were so detailed and so exciting to get in the to play with and to figure out how to then use this mechanism to make them come to life. What was that like bringing miniatures, which existed in West End, obviously, but then really, I think, expanded on that idea, made it a little more um, consumer-facing and a little more easily accessible, especially for, you know, again, a 15-year-old to then go out and get a bunch of. Um, what was that process like, turning that Star Wars miniature game into a fully-fledged product? Yeah, it's probably the... the of everything we did for at Wizards for Star Wars, uh, which, which uh, I, you know, I'm proud of the whole line, but I mm -hmm. think the miniatures was our was the highlight um, for me as well. Um, <clears throat> when we did the West End and, and prior to these, uh, miniatures were really three hobbies in one. You had to build them, you had to paint them, and then you could play with them. And if you were bad at any of those, <laughs> you felt like you failed. Mm -hmm. I, we, we, we started it for D&D. &D. Uh, we did the miniatures first for D&D. &D, and that was kind of our test case. And while we were doing them, we created a, a Darth Maul figure. And we showed it to Lucasfilm and said, we want to make these. And they said, yes, make those. <laughs> uh, um, they were painted plastic, which meant you could open the box and they were immediately, they, they might not be as good as the best built and painted metal miniature you could find, but they were better than what most people could do on their own. 
and and they were fr- frankly they were pretty good. I think they they looked good. They They're, they looked very very good. I'll t- uh, I'll, I'll just give it to I, you. They looked very very, I, very good. I continue to use my collection to this day, uh-huh. uh, along with my D and D ones. Um, you know, and we built them to use for the role playing game to be a collectible, uh, and also. Uh, you could just play the miniatures game, which was basically a, a, a battle game that, that two to four players could, could get at a table and, and fight for dominance of the map they were fighting over. Each set, we'd come up with a theme. I worked with Rob Watkins uh, after we did the initial design of the game. And I would work with him to come up with the theme set. He would stack them all out, uh, play test them, make sure everything was balanced. We'd work with our art directors and the artists to create the poses uh, get them approved through Lucasfilm, and then the, the the great sculptors in China would put them together, and and suddenly we'd have uh, a, a new set of sixty figures to uh, to play with. It was like uh, Christmas every time they showed up at the office. Um, <laughs> one of the, the you know one day after we got started, I took the uh, side view of the ATAT Walker. And said, I wonder what this would look like in scale. <laughs> and I blew it up on the on my copy machine, on our copy machine. And I made it to the right size. And I put one of the little figures next to it. And I called uh, <laughs> my miniature guy, uh, production guy, Chaz DeLong in and said, can we do this? And he said, no. And he came back a little while later and says, yeah, I think we can. And so we built the full scale AT-AT Walker that's on a base that's gridded so you could move around underneath it. That's probably the most most favorite thing of the <laughs> miniatures that we created. Uh, I still have one on my uh, shelf here at my home it. office. I love it. I, I remember seeing that. I think it was like in Star Wars Insider. They're like, oh, look at this. And I remember begging my parents, obviously, to get that. But instead, I ended up just getting, I think you guys did that little ATST pack yes. with and that's mm-hmm. that is that was the consolation prize that I received. So uh, that's pretty good too. <laughs> that's pretty good too. I'll take it. Right. One of the things moving from miniatures as as much as I could talk your ear off about how much that miniature game meant to me over the years. Um, but one of the things that you detail in your book that I didn't know, and which which is obviously you know apparent when you play the actual game, was the involvement with Wizards at the time and the Knights of the Old Republic game as it was being built, and then the lack of involvement. Can you expand on that story a little bit and kind of that process of helping bring D20 to that game? Sure. <clears throat> so... Um... You're probably seeing a theme by this point. Lucasfilm licensing liked everything to connect. Uh-huh. So uh, uh, BioWare was working on Knights of the Old Republic, and uh, Lucasfilm gave them our core rulebook and said, use this as the basis. And they gave us back a design document, which was translating our rules into their game. And I got to go over that and give them feedback, uh, make suggestions, uh, remind them that they were still doing a computer game. It was better to make it look like our game on the surface and be whatever they needed behind the scenes to make it actually work uh, in real time, right? Uh, and, and they took that to heart, uh, but they utilized a lot of our uh, classes and, uh, and basically the whole structure of the game. But at that point, uh, Hasbro had a division called Hasbro Interactive that was basically bleeding money. Um, and they had to get rid of it. And so to do that, they were going to sell it to Atari. Uh, and this was happening around the same time. And to make the deal, uh, lucrative to Atari, Atari got the rights to, uh, to D and D, uh, and the role-playing games. So, uh, in order not to cause any ripples in this deal, they asked, us to ask Lucasfilm not to mention the connection between our game and uh, Knights of the Old Republic, which is unfortunate because I think it would have actually helped drive uh, interest and eyes to the role-playing game. But alas, uh, they acquiesced. And so anyone in the know thought that Bioware had ripped us off. But in truth, it was a partnership that was supposed to have been acknowledged until we asked them not to. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, and also, not love it. Uh, well, that, I've asked um, 
a lot of questions, and I feel like I've, I've talked your ear off. One, one quote in your book, and I'd love to then now talk about your book and how people can get it, that really stuck out to me. Um, and you attributed it to, you know, I think it was an anonymous source in the book, but it was uh, George Lucas created these movies, West End Games built a universe. Uh, and, and really that is a testament, and I think you say it, 2.5 million words that you've contributed in one way or another to the Star Wars universe. Is there anything that stands out to you as you look back um, all the way to the early 90s of, of the worlds that you helped build that you're the most proud of or that you're the most excited that has carried through all this time? I think in general, you, you mentioned it earlier, and it's just the the attitude and the, the tone. I think we kind of set that in the role-playing game and it got carried through into the new reality mm. and uh, the Star Wars universe is a lived in universe and we made those books lived in and it kind of just fed on itself um, and you know I like to think the work that uh, uh, Dave Filoni and his team did on Rebels it, it was like a love letter I don't know if it was meant that way but it mm. read to me like a love letter to the role-playing game because that was basically a group of player characters who got their ship from a uh, tramp freighter book and <laughs> went off to do adventures for the rebellion. And uh, that's exactly what we set out to do 32 years ago now. I love it. I love it. And, and the legacy that West End has left, that Wizards has left, and now that is really carried through with, like we mentioned earlier, Pablo Hidalgo, Leland Chi, both involved with the animated series that you were talking about, really. And, 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 and those guys started... Pablo started with the uh, Adventure Journal, yeah. which was after I left West End, but uh, his legacy goes back to West End. And uh, Leland started with us at the Wizards game, mm -hmm. where uh, his job was to take my Guide to the Galaxy and turn it into what became the Holocron, the, mm -hmm. the database for, for all the Star Wars stuff. The, the legacy that you have laid and that West End has laid, and now that these new carriers of the torch have laid um, cannot be understated and, and really thank you so much. How can people read Defining a Galaxy? Um, I read it on Kindle. Where's the best place for someone to pick it up? Uh, so Defining a Galaxy uh, published uh, last year uh, for the 30th anniversary of uh, the game uh, was uh, put together with my friends at Rogue Genius Games. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get it on Drive through RPG uh, or Amazon as an ebook or a, or a e download. Or if you go to Drive through RPG, there's also an option to get a, a print on demand copy for um, fifteen bucks. So, uh, or the I think the uh, the ebook copy is eight bucks, yeah. uh, something like that. Um, I had a lot of fun putting it together. It's kind of my uh, memoir of a time that every time a new movie comes out. Somebody like you calls me and wants to know things. <laughs> uh, so I kind of, uh, and it, it was the 30th year. I, I realized we, we were in that celebration year and I kind of got nostalgic and I felt like I had to put all the memories down before I forgot them. So uh, uh, I mostly wrote it for me, but if somebody else gets some enjoyment and knowledge out of it, uh, that's great. Well, I'm I'm so glad you wrote them down because I I did get a lot. I read it twice as I talked to you earlier in a, a span of literally four days. An incredible read, a, an important read, and I encourage everyone listening to to check it out. Thank you so much for for coming on, and thank you so much for indulging me with answering all of my questions. Oh, no problem. I, I had fun. Again, I want to thank Mr. Slavisek for his time and thoughtfulness while answering my incredibly nerdy questions about the role-playing games and miniatures that meant so much to me growing up. If I didn't gush enough about his memoir, Defining a Galaxy, I have included links to purchase both the physical and digital copies in the description. It is truly worth your time and your read. Next week, I'm talking to Mr. Jason Fry, who I think is one of the most exciting authors in the current Star Wars Expanded Universe. So, until next time, stay tuned, Leave a five-star review, and may the Force be with you. <laughs>